0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my fantabulous co host, Alan <laughs> McGirt.
1: Oh, is that Alan. a word? I think it is now. It is now. Well, you're the wordsmith, so yes, it is. (laughs) So as our listeners know, over the past two months, we've spent some time focused on the war in Ukraine. Back in early March, we spoke with the CEO of CyberArk about the threat of cyber warfare. More recently, we spent time with the CEO of IKEA talking through the company's decision to halt operations in Russia. But as this conflict has sadly continued, it's become clear we really need to talk about the impact that this is having on people, what that means for leaders. Alan, you reached out to the CEO of Yara. Can you tell us what prompted that?
0: Uh, Sure. Well, Yara is a fertilizer company and it provides fertilizer to the globe. And I've gotten to know the CEO, who I think is a A shining example of, Ellen, what you and I talk about so often on Leadership Next. He really is focused on making the world a better place, and he has a A focus on climate, but also has worked hard to improve agriculture productivity in Africa, which is critical to the success of that continent. And he had said to me in one of our conversations that the Russia-Ukraine war was going to have potentially devastating effects on the global agricultural economy. So I thought it would be important for us to have a conversation with him about that.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. And he's been working on food insecurity issues for so long. He was really the perfect person to weigh in. And even if there wasn't a food crisis brewing, he's such a perfect guest for this show.
0: Yeah. And I want to just point out one thing he said, uh, highlight one thing he said in advance. He told us that he spends more than half of his time focusing on these social issues, global hunger, working with the World Food Organization, climate change. I've heard stories like that from so many CEOs in the last few years, that they, they really feel like addressing social problems is key to their company's success in the long term, and they think it's worth their time to see what they can do to improve the situation.
1: I also want to add that a bit later in the show, we're going to hear from David Miliband. He heads the International Rescue Committee and is focused on helping refugees. Millions of Ukrainians have been displaced by this conflict, and while we don't typically speak with NGOs, David makes clear that there's definitely a role for business to play in alleviating this crisis. But first, let's turn to Sventora Holsether.
0: So, Sven, explain to people, what is Yara?
2: Yara is a fertilizer company We were founded 120 years ago when... Europe was faced with uh, famine because plants didn't get enough nutrition. And one of the key ingredients for plants is nitrogen. And our founder, Professor Birkladne, he came up with the innovation that was able to extract nitrogen from the air and turn it into nutrition for plants. And uh, today we're uh, a global company, operations in 60 countries. We sell our products to 160 countries with an annual turnover of uh, around $16 billion.
0: Uh, Let's start with the news of the day. I mean, we have this brutal war going on in Ukraine, which is critical in ways many people may not understand to global food supplies. Can you tell us what the impact is going to be?
2: Yeah, what is happening in Ukraine is just devastating. The Russian invasion back in February is causing a humanitarian catastrophe and the hardship that the Ukrainian people is going through. Now I'm even struggling to find words to describe that. Uh, and uh, we have colleagues in, in Ukraine uh, working with Ukrainian farmers. Our office building outside Kiev was hit by a, a missile on the third day of the of the war. And seeing the office building with our logo on it and a big hole in it, it makes it very uh, real and, and close. And, and um, fortunately, none of our people were physically injured. But when we're listening to the their stories, they're joining our meetings uh, every day from uh, bomb shelters. The pictures we see of people fleeing the, the country, it's uh, uh, devastating. And uh, it has a ripple effect also outside Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a world power in food production, one of the biggest wheat exporters in the world, uh, one of the biggest corn producers, sunflower oil. So a multiple of crops, and when you combine that with the country that invaded them, Russia which is also a world power in food production, the combined impact to the food system is huge both on crops but also for inputs such as fertilizers.
1: So when you think about what's happening now, what are the scenarios that you're dealing with and how are you addressing those possible scenarios for the global food supply?
2: There will be a food crisis. It's a question of how large the food crisis will be, hence the importance to raise the issues to put mitigating actions in place. But this was a problem even before the invasion. After uh, decades of reduction in in world hunger, this turned with the pandemic. There were uh, 100 million more people going hungry to bed at the end of 2020 than before the pandemic. And that's before the war. And food is also... uh, Energy, so, when we have uh, increasing energy costs that translate into more expensive food and it becomes unaffordable to many uh, people now we're looking at uh, scenarios where it could not only be a question about the price but also the availability because of the shock that the, the food system will get as a result of this and uh, depending on on how you do the calculations, it could be as many as four hundred million people food dependent on. Mm. Russia and Ukraine. So we're talking really big numbers here. And so, and
0: what can be done to prevent that? I mean, this will play out over the course of the year, I suppose, as we have a subpar harvest in Ukraine. But what can you or what can others do to try and prevent 400 million people from being without food?
2: The first and most important action is that the war ends. That's what's causing this new shock to the food system then there are uh, a number of...
0: And just to drill down on that a little bit, that the war ends in time to allow for a normal planting season?
2: I think that's too late. Um, The disruptions to the food system and and the value chains, that's already happened. So uh, it will not be avoided, but uh, definitely it can be reduce there are some measures that we can take now in order to reduce the impact and and that's doing uh, whatever we can to keep trade flows uh, going both for food and for inputs and reducing uh, the impact of policy measures such as export bans and so on if if you go back to the 2007 2008 food crisis 75% of the cost increases were a result of uh, export bans and and preventing the free Flow of Food. I've uh, spoken with David Beasley, uh, who's setting up the World Food Program on several occasions. He was already $6 billion short before the war, and uh, he's been raising his voice to get some of the wealthiest individuals in the world to uh, support uh, in, in, in reducing uh, hunger. I think it has to be a call to nations as well that, to, to step up their efforts and their funding to help immediately now to, to reduce the impact.
1: I can imagine that behind the scenes, CEO to CEO, leader to leader, there are extraordinary conversations going on around this crisis and what people need to do. Can you give us a flavor of the kinds of conversations that are happening behind the scenes and where the resistance is, where the concerns are, and where there are signs of hope, if possible?
2: Yes, and it's important that uh, we engage from the business side. And uh, and I have been quite vocal on, on this for several weeks now uh, after the Invasion of Ukraine on the uh, dilemmas and what this means for trade flows, especially in our business, crop nutrients or fertilizers to help farmers. Half of the world gets its food because of uh, fertilizers. Uh, you know, plants need nutrition to grow, and uh, these are value chains and trade flows that have been developed over decades or even centuries, and and. Uh, and Russia has a major role in that system. And uh, we're also sourcing from Russia. And I raised that dilemma earlier that, yes, I, I could stop sourcing right away, uh, but it has bigger implications uh, on uh, productivity for farmers. And um, I wanted to discuss that dilemma with the national governments internationally uh, as well. What's the humanitarian effect of uh, stopping that because of the impact to, to food supply?
0: And, and what's the reaction to that conversation been? I mean, we've seen extraordinary, really unprecedented actions by companies in response to what happened in the Ukraine, cutting off their business ties with Russia. You're making a much more nuanced argument. Yes, take action against Russia, but don't take action that's going to cause people to starve elsewhere in the world.
2: Exactly, and, and I feel it's important to, to uh, at least discuss that dilemma so that we understand the full implications of uh, what is happening to uh, the ability for farmers to grow food or the affordability of food. And again, it's the most vulnerable that will uh, be hit—the the ones that have been hardest hit by climate, by COVID, and now also by by, by the cost of food. Uh, now sanctions are in place, and of course, we will follow the, the sanctions, and we're working. A, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in order to get new supplies of uh, minerals, but it takes some some time. This is a much smaller crisis for for Yara than it is for the world. And then it was important to raise the voice on and explaining the um, connection between energy, minerals and, and food production and how that could impact food supply.
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, leadership in crisis is very different than in normal times. You have to make these gut-wrenching trade-offs and very fast decisions. What kind of advice do you give to leaders who are navigating these very choppy waters? There are a few critical dimensions that have to come together seamlessly. You obviously need to be able to get to the right decisions quickly. And that takes the ability of the executive team and the board to synthesize large volumes of information, to make sense out of uncertainty, but just as importantly, communicate those decisions effectively to take your whole organization on the journey, demonstrating a sense of calm and confidence, finding that balance of delivering candor and straight talk, while at the same time laying out a vision that's optimistic, instilling confidence that great organizations will come through challenging times with strength. There has to be a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not an easy task. I actually view being realistic and credible around the current situation as the price of admission to be able to talk to your people about a more optimistic future. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, as I mentioned earlier, the war in Ukraine has spurred more than one crisis. It didn't feel like we could talk about the impending threat of a food shortage and not mention the immediate emergency facing millions of refugees who have been forced to flee their homes. And that's where the International Rescue Committee comes in. It's a global organization headquartered in New York, originally founded, I didn't know this, by Albert Einstein in the 1930s to rescue people persecuted by the Nazis. David Miliband is the president and CEO of the IRC. He had a unique take on how for-profit companies can be partnering with governments and NGOs to address this crisis.
3: We work with those who are displaced by war, whether as internally displaced or as refugees, which means that they cross a border into a neighboring state. And we're also the largest refugee resettlement agency in the US with 25 offices across the country. So we are now a large, focused, global humanitarian agency that sees some of the most vulnerable people in the world. We're an organization with deep roots in the communities that we work because 90 plus percent of the people who we employ are actually local people who are Mm -hmm. from the areas that are under fire or are refugees and displaced people themselves. And so our job is to help people survive, recover and gain control of their lives.
1: Can you tell us what's going on in Ukraine right now and how big is this crisis and uh, how do you work under those conditions?
3: Yeah, horrifying is the right word. Uh, It's a crisis across three fronts. There are people, civilians, uh, caught up in cities under fire. There are people on the move inside the country fleeing the fighting, those are the internally displaced. And the third front is the refugees, the people who've crossed into Poland, Hungary, Moldova or moved on into Germany or even the UK. So there are three fronts to the humanitarian crisis. You asked how big is it. I mean, in numbers terms, here's something quite interesting. It took for a million people to be displaced in the Syrian civil war 10 years ago, which started in 2011. It took about three months for a million people to become refugees in neighboring states like Jordan and Lebanon. In the case of Ukraine, it took five days for a million people to become refugees. And essentially, what's happened today is that you've got four and a half million refugees from Ukraine into the neighboring states. You've got probably eight million people displaced inside the country. And the equivalent figure for Syria 10 years on is six million Syrians who are refugees, eight million internally displaced. So essentially, what's happened in warp speed in the Ukraine crisis is what took years in other crises.
1: Before the war started, Ukraine was an enormously technology forward country with tremendous engineering talent and real ambitions of creating a a digital business friendly country going forward, really, really top notch. That is not true every place. How do you differentiate your approach, your needs assessments and your partnership strategy in a place that has the resources that Ukraine does, or in a place that does not like Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. What we learned in the Syria crisis is deeply relevant in the Ukraine crisis. Mm. What's the first thing that a Syrian refugee did when they got off a boat in Greece? They got their mobile phone out to right. find out where they were and how could they get round. And that's where actually you know, in a really powerful partnership with various tech companies and others, we developed for the Syrian crisis what's become a global resource called Signpost, which is an online information exchange hmm. about where people displaced by war can find out what they need. And we've made a point of making information provision an important part of our effort. Uh, it's also important to say that one of the best things that you can do, and there's good evidence to back this up in humanitarian, in meeting humanitarian need, is give out cash. Now, in some places, you're literally giving out Cash, but in right. a uh, Ukraine style situation, uh, you can use cards because there are ATMs that are functioning. So the technology enables a different kind of response.
1: Just listening to you for the few minutes we've been together, I'm developing an internal list of ways big organizations can help. What is your wish list for big companies with resources to be more responsive to the needs of refugees or displaced people, wherever they may be? But particularly now?
3: Yeah, I think there's four or five things. One, ideas. Uh, We're always interested in good ideas. I mean, big and successful businesses have got good ideas. So I mentioned the online information exchange that we develop, but frankly, there are organizations (laughs) with strategy units who want to second people to us or share their ideas. There are legal organizations that want to offer pro bono services. So ideas and expertise, number one. Number two, not to be neglected, voice, the voice of business matters. And we hope that um, when the United States develops policies for helping refugees or not, uh, that its business community speaks up. Uh, That's important. Uh, Thirdly, refugees need jobs. Mm -hmm. And some of the work we've done in Germany, for example, with Syrian refugees has been all about getting refugees into jobs, not unqualified people for jobs, but the right job for the right person in the right place. So my message would be give people a chance, give our clients a chance. Don't just partner with us. Think about partnering with us for the direct benefit of our clients. I think, fourthly, and importantly, help us design programs that really take a client-focused approach. The humanitarian sector has a lot of programs that are developed on the basis of what we think clients want, that's the history. But business successful business knows you have to be genuinely client-oriented, generally customer-oriented. Mm-hmm. And we've found that in some of our human-centered design work, we've really learned from the way the private sector has gone about this. Uh, fifthly and finally, there's real work, I, I think, that we can do to use the resources both of the corporate sector and of its employees mm-hmm. to make a difference. Often the first instinct of a, of a business might be, well, we wanna do something different. I always say, look, we've proven a lot of things that can work in health or education or livelihoods or women's protection, but we can't scale them because of the way the funding system works for NGOs. And so think about scaling what works and taking pride in making a difference. And often we're finding that our most successful partnerships with business have a corporate philanthropic contribution, but they also have a match campaign for the employees and they have us reporting back about the difference that's being made because it's easy to feel a sense of disempowerment at the moment. And what we try to do to overcome that is to be a solutions focused NGO where we've got expertise and experience and boots on the ground. And then we match with people with with passion and idealism to make a difference.
1: So uh, I want to dig in a little bit more on the structure of NGOs, because I think you said something really interesting, particularly in the light of the growth of ESG as a conversation about governance, as a conversation about social responsibility and social impact. What does that look like? You're already a fairly magical person, but if I gave you a magic wand to go along with that, How would you redesign how NGOs operate or are funded? Or is this a broader conversation about philanthropy in general?
3: Well, I think it's a broader conversation about how the world works, really, in a way. I don't want to seem grandiose about it, but uh, just a couple of things. One, you mentioned ESG, and of course, the prior genesis of this was uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility. If I could wave a magic wand, it would be to say it would be to ban the word responsibility and insert the word results. So that we're talking about corporate social results, not corporate social responsibility. And our offer to the business sector is is to say, look, if you want to make a difference for good, we can help you do that. Mm -hmm. And you can help us do that. And that's what the partnership is about. But it's got to be about results. Every one of our programs is dedicated towards an outcome. That may seem simple, but actually that's quite a big change. We're not just uh, interested in inputs, we're interested in outcomes. And I think that a, an approach that stresses corporate social results immediately puts the clients at the center. That's our big idea that we try to live up to. Um, so that's the first thing that I would say. Secondly, I think for the NGO sector, the big temptation is to chase the money. And what we try to emphasize, and this is explicit in our new strategy, is we don't just want more money. We want the right kind of money the right kind of money is outcome focused. It's client centered. It's multi-year because I think NGOs don't do themselves any favors when they say to the corporate sector, give us this money and we'll solve this problem in a year. Very few serious problems get solved in the space of uh, a year. So we emphasize the right kind of money and the right kind of partnership Uh because the money is only one part of the partnership. That's why I answered your previous question by starting by talking about let's share ideas, uh, let's share experience, let's share expertise. Yes, let's take your money, but That's part of a wider conversation. We're a $1.2 billion organization. Three quarters of that money comes from governments. But the average length of a government grant is about 11 months. And so it's a short-term grant horizon. The average size of a grant is $1 or $1.5 million. You're not going to really shift the dial in that way. You need to think over a multi-year. You need to think about larger pools of, of money. And so what we try to say to our business partners is, look, come in and with others help us scale and help us make a difference for more people, more impact for more people. And I think we're having much more honest conversations now about shared endeavor that is very exciting, really.
1: Mm. I know I have to let you go. We typically ask our guests three questions about how they're thinking about the economy and COVID and their own leadership development. But I think it's a more important to ask you how you're doing and how you and your colleagues and the people on the ground stay resilient in the face of this work.
3: Well, look, the truth is that it's relatively easy for me compared to my colleagues on the front line, never mind for the clients of the uh, that we are, are serving. So I, I, I really, um, you know, for all the unutterable depressingness of the last 2 years of covid and all the rest of it we're living a comfortable middle class lifestyle in new york so i mean it's one's got to have a sense of uh, humility about this so uh, i think our, our own sense of privilege is very um, one's very aware of that um, however tough we feel it is for us relatively speaking now you asked a very interesting point how do how do my colleagues retain resilience and i think the truth is that they're very mission driven mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Secondly, we try to support them properly with much more emphasis on their own mental health and their own resilience, which I think is underestimated. It's important. You've got to worry about people who are very mission-driven, that they burn out. So we've got to be aware of that as an employer. But the real... Um, lesson, I think, about how you retain hope, I'm not sure if you use the word hope, but I think you said resilience, but is this idea that if you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you've got hope. And the uh, yeah. the fact that through the tears in Ukraine or Afghanistan or Ethiopia, people, our clients say they, they're they're working so hard to sustain themselves because their own lives might be ruined, but they're they're determined their kids get a chance. That's very, very powerful motivator Mm -hmm. to to keep you going. Mm -hmm. And I think that that combination of the high level of need that draws people with a a sense of mission, the support we try to offer, but above all the sense that you don't wanna let your clients down, that is a great source of, I think, resilience because the greatest role in helping people survive, recover, and gain control of their lives obviously comes from, from those who are affected. But we are there to support them, and that's what we try to do.
1: David Miliband, thank you so much for being here. Best of luck, and please stay in touch.
3: Thank you so much. Really good to talk to you.
1: And we are back with Sventora of Yara. I want to go back to 2015 when you were persuaded and moved by the arguments surrounding the Paris Climate Agreement. And you decide to transform your legacy company into a solution to decarbonize the food supply, in part by making a commitment to produce green fertilizer. Tell us about that. Why was this so important?
2: Well, um, this transformation of our company is more important now than uh, ever. We we need more food for a growing population. At the same time, we need to do that in a way that uh, results in less emissions. And the food system represents 25 to 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's it's, it's very clear. We're not going to be able to reach the Paris Agreement unless we solve food. And that starts with uh, how food is grown. And uh, half of the world's population gets its food because of mineral fertilizer. And and, and it takes energy to produce fertilizer. Then we need to see what we can do to move that from fossil uh, to renewable. And this is possible. We can then move from uh, the traditional uh, way of producing nitrogen and ammonia, which goes into fertilizer, to use electrolyzers to produce green hydrogen. And we use green hydrogen to produce green ammonia with renewable electricity. And we've been we've seen that now very clearly that uh, Europe and indeed the world has become too dependent on energy uh, sourcing of fossil from Russia and the implications that has for affordability of energy. So let's now speed up the the build-out of renewable energy, use that to change the so-called hard rebate sectors by electrification and moving them over to renewable energy.
0: And when do you expect to complete the transition to green
2: fertilizers? Yeah, that, that's uh, not entirely up to me, Alan. It, it's also about creating the, the market for this so, so that there's a demand for the product. We're ready to transform and we, we made the first step. The first green fertilizers will be available already in uh, by, by next year. But it requires a value chain approach to it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. We ought to stick with that for a minute because more and more large companies are taking the approach that Yara took starting in 2015. Say We get it. There's a problem here. We're responsible. We're going to take action. I think more than a third of the Fortune 500 now have made net zero commitments or something similar. But what I keep hearing from many of those leaders is. The problem is kind of mid-market companies that don't have the resources, the knowledge in order to address it with the seriousness that big companies like Yara are addressing it. And farming is probably the worst example of that. It's a very distributed uh, ecosystem, lots of small players within it. And it's a huge contributor to the emissions problem. So how do you deal with the demand side of it? Uh, how do you get this Distributed global farming ecosystem, where it has to get to deal with the climate problem.
2: Exactly, and that's why it's so important that we now approach this on full value chains rather than seeing uh, everything in isolation. You know, but then we need to create the transparency on this so that the consumers understand how food is produced and how sustainable uh, it is, and and what is too expensive for our company to do alone, and what is also too expensive for the farmers alone to to lift in terms of increased prices for green fertilizer. If you look at the full value chain, the cost is actually quite small, and that's a uh, why it's so important that we have the discussion throughout the food industry. I'm working a lot together with uh, former Unilever CEO, Paul Polman, on getting that full value chain from input to retailers and, and, and the bigger food companies to enable the farmers to get a, a market for the products that are produced in a more sustainable way. So that's the responsibility, I think, on the larger companies to create an enabling environment to, to pull the mid and smaller size companies and farmers with them to, to make this transformation.
1: Well, when you talk about it that way, and I'm not convinced that everybody fully sees the value of this work, and it's certainly there have been more skeptics earlier in the journey. It sounds like it's completely changed the way you operate as a CEO, that you spend more time cultivating these relationships, crafting um, these new deals and, and blazing brand new trails here with folks than you did before. Can you talk about the leadership impact of this commitment and how the company has responded?
2: Yes, and and, and uh, this is absolutely necessary. And I, I think it makes a lot of business sense uh, as well because no company will prosper in a society that is not prospering. And frankly, we should have seen this four decades ago. Uh, the the scientists explained to us what would happen to the climate if we continued on on the trajectory of emissions. Yet we didn't do anything. So now, only big scale transformations throughout whole value chains uh, will enable it. So so what? could have been done as fine-tuning individually 40 years ago. And that has to be a collective approach. And that's why it uh, has to be CEO, led it has to be the value chain uh, approach to understand the, the totality. And, and that's uh, the commitment that all CEOs need to take now.
0: That's a fascinating point. I mean, how much of your time would you say today you spend on the societal problem, the collective action problem, working with people who... Once upon a time, where your competitors are working across the whole value chain to make progress on this, how much of your time does that take up, and how does that compare to your predecessors of twenty years ago?
2: I think the the role of the CEOs has changed dramatically over the last decades, and and even in, during my time here at Yara, I have to be clear that first you have to get your own house in order, but with that in place. I said that the way forward for our company and indeed the, the whole industry is only if we're able to get together and think full value chain role in society. So I'm spending much more than half of my time, maybe as much in periods as 75% of my time is spent on the, I said, creating the enabling environment to support the farmers to get paid for what they actually do and make agriculture part of the Uh, solution. That's a lot of my time, but at the same time, it's the only way forward. And that's how we uh, will be able to uh, develop our company. It fits with the strategy as well. So it makes sense, but uh, it's probably much more than uh, my predecessors spent of their time outside the company.
1: Well, we've been asking all our guests this season to answer three questions, top of mind, lightning round. So first question is, what's top of mind for you when you think about COVID?
2: Well, top of mind, this um, it's been an extremely challenging period. It has also increased distrust across the world because of how it's been handled. Some countries very good, some not so good, and some people were left behind. So it's it's a reminder how vulnerable our communities are, but also in the positive sense, how we're able to solve problems quickly as well when we're faced with a very clear and present danger
1: top of mind for you when you're thinking about the global economy
2: i'm um, worried about the impact that we will see now uh, to global trade flows we already seen the impact as a result of the pandemic and what that means on trade flows bottlenecks uh, and the lasting effect of that and uh, uh now with the war as well, we we have another shock to global trade flows that will likely have impact in terms of inflation and the availability of several goods.
1: And finally, top of mind for you as you think about what's next for you as a leader.
2: Well, it's it's really accelerating uh, what we're doing now. And um, we already had a, a food system that was broken. Now it has become worse to the extent that the uh, Maybe this is the enough wake-up call for all of us to really step up and accelerate our way forward to create a more resilient, robust, and fair food system that also reduces its emissions. Uh, and, and for me as a leader, uh, my contribution to that will be to work on that in a transparent way across the industry and uh, involving the farmers and uh, communities in that.
0: Sventor Holsether, thank you for joining us from Oslo. Fascinating and disturbing conversation about the crisis in the global food system, but we appreciate everything you're doing on this front and, and appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive Producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.